Uh, here we are. Welcome back to Left Out on Reality-Based Independent Radio on WRCT 88.3 FM and podcasts on the World Wide Web at leftout.info. Left Out discusses the news from a perspective left out of the mainstream media. I'm Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. And today's program is uh, ably produced by Tina Milo. Uh, listeners, as usual, are invited to call the program at 412-268-9728 uh, during the program, during the show. You can also contact us by sending electronic mail to bob at leftout.info for, uh, during the, which we'll monitor during the show. Or uh, a, a third way to get in touch with us, if you like, is through the AOL chat room, Left Out, two words, capital O, capital O. Uh, and you can welcome to join that chat room and uh, make any comments uh, that you might like or suggestions uh, during the program. So it's the beginning of a new season here at Left Out. We're just starting uh, this semester for the first time. And uh, 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 one moment. Uh, Okay, so we're just starting a new season, and we've been away, went off over the summer. I've been, I've been abroad. We had a little technical problem there. Excuse me. Uh, I've been abroad for the summer. Danny's been around. Um, we're just, uh, we're just getting ourselves back organized. A little bit late starting today, but thank you all for listening. So we have, uh, as ever, a number, a uh, number of topics to discuss of political matters. Uh, there's never any any shortage of political matters to discuss these days. And uh, we uh, originally had scheduled as a guest uh, Norman Finkelstein, who is a, a well-known uh, and very controversial political commentator about <laughs> Middle East affairs, who previously spoke at Carnegie Mellon, I think, within the last year and a half or so. Um, but uh, he's uh, fell ill by a virus that's been going around and uh, isn't able to make the show today. So we'll have him back uh, on another occasion. Uh, so the first uh, topic we want to uh, discuss today uh, was talking about the, uh, well, the very, the very topical issue of uh, trying to put an end to the war uh, in Iraq. And so we have a bunch of things uh, we'd like to talk about here. The high-level picture being, as, as everyone absolutely is fully aware, uh, we're right in the thick of things now of deciding about whether to continue the war. We're yet again in the thick of things about deciding whether to continue the war. You'll recall the last spring the Democrats uh, caved in and uh, gave uh, Bush everything that he wanted and then some uh, to continue the war with his uh, patented surge strategy. And uh, everything was supposed to be put on hold until this September, that is now, to figure out uh, you know just how successful it is. That was the only question, and uh, and indeed uh, last week uh, our our fearless leader uh, gave a uh, gave a, a, a prime time speech, an IPM speech on uh, national television radio, uh, which 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 is based on the theme of uh, let's see what was it build on success no return, return on, on success. success yes return on success so. Uh, uh, you have to admire his uh, chutzpah uh, in uh, declaring there are operations in Iraq to be to be hugely successful. So, if so you hadn't noticed, uh, they are hugely successful, and well, the Bush's proposal is to build on that success. So just to put it in context, when they were talking about the surge and why, why what the purpose of the surge, excuse my voice, by the way, I'm trying to recover from a cold. You also have a cold. Yeah, um... When they were trying to recover from the from the um, well, sorry justify the surge, the, the argument was that this would uh, give the Iraqi government time to do political reconciliation. A bunch of a bunch of issues were going to be resolved in the Iraqi government. A bunch of bills would be passed yeah, and so on. Bills, that's right. Well, it turned out that they fail in almost all of these things. And reports have come out from um, various offices evaluating the Iraqi government that have proven they've completely failed. And the surge's original purpose, um, you know, surprise, surprise has failed to achieve what it was supposed to achieve. Um, but 
they turned around and, you know, presented Petraeus and um, Crocker uh, presenting, well, some other reasons why the surge was, has been useful and why we have to continue doing the surge. But, I mean, it, it's completely, it's a typical, you know, bait-and-switch thing. It's been happening the entire war with f- the reasons for going to war being changed on a, you know, semi-annual as, as basis. <laughs> yeah. And what's the thing that's happened now, and I've got this, there's this feeling that's emerged, and we're going to talk more about some details here, but that this war is inevitable that it will continue to the end of the Bush presidency, but actually it will continue a lot longer than that. Oh, now, they're, now they're talking openly about at least 10 years, and I would say that that's a, that itself is a joke. I mean, I think it's even longer. I think it's a permanent. They're trying to make analogies to, you know, Korea and other places where the U.S. still has a huge, you know, military, presence military presences. <laughs> and uh, so, of course, the difference here is that they're actually in combat or you know, being killed on a regular basis all the time, and, and it's immensely expensive to keep this thing going. Um, but what's so discouraging about us in the peace movement and, and, and trying to fight this thing from the beginning is, well, there's a lot of things that are really discouraging about it. I mean, the, the, mainly the fact that the Democrats have been unable to do anything. And, and what's a, there's a weird sort of uh, meme that's emerged from all of this where uh, it's just declared that the Democrats can't stop the war. They, quote, don't have the votes, unquote, to stop the war. And I, I, but maybe we should just illustrate, illustrate with a couple of examples. Uh, I've got a clip from, uh, can you play that, Bob? It's the clip of Tim Russert. Uh, it's about a one-minute clip of, of uh, Tim Russert. Uh, yeah, uh, here we are. Uh, we'll he, well, he described it a week, uh, like I think it was th- uh, Friday. Last Friday, okay. Or Thursday oh. night after Bush's speech. Oh, that's right. He's immediately yeah. after Bush's speech. Yeah. Uh, so let's try to let's hear the clip. Play this clip. He is putting a plan in place that is going to guarantee U.S. military involvement in Iraq long after he leaves the White House. The Democrats' dilemma, and you heard it with Senator Jack Reed's response, is we are going to change the course of the war. But they don't know how, because they don't have the votes to override a veto. And the only way to do it is, in effect, close the Senate down, close the government down, and try to cut off the funding. And they don't find that politically viable. So the president, I believe tonight, was speaking as someone who had the upper hand and basically said to the Democrat, it's the Petraeus proposal, it's now my plan, your move. So here he is saying that the only way the Democrats can uh, can do anything is by you know shutting down the Senate, shutting down the government. Now I yeah, guess thereby he, calling up, calling to mind uh, Gingrich's famously failed maneuver in 1994 uh, when he shut down the government uh, in, a, in a political battle with Clinton. Yeah. So, but I mean that implies that there's a the necessity, for example, for a filibuster that goes on for months or something. That's right. But what? The first thing to ask, and so, this is so Russer portrays it as either they do what President Bush says, or they shut down the government. Right. Well, what never talked about, and, and maybe maybe I'm just naive and I just don't know what's actually happening. I don't think that's the case. But for example, in order for the war to continue, it has to be funded. Funding must be obtained by passing bills through the House and the Senate, which means all that has to happen to stop the war is that no funding bill passes either the House or the Senate. So, for example, if the if the House, where they have a t- 233 to 201 majority, they need something like 217 votes, simply 217 members of Congress who simply voted no on any bill that didn't have a pullout date, they would stop the war. Yes, that's right. Now, what, what, now I haven't seen the calculation, 
of you know vote tallies. Do they have 217 votes uh, or 218 votes? I guess it is. Do they have 218 votes that will vote no on any any bill that doesn't have a withdrawal in it? I don't know, but where that that seems like the important calculation to be making. That's the important because they don't they don't have to pass a bill. And the whole point of the they have to not pass here, a bill. They just have to simply not pass a bill. They have to or uh, an alternative is to if if they can uh, if they can get it on the table is they can they can introduce uh, amendments that uh, to like the web amendment to limit the uh, right. the amount of time that soldiers can be uh, can be deployed and to uh, and to specify the amount of time in between deployments and so on. And they can introduce that and. Then pass that bill and then uh, demand that uh, that Bush veto it. So it's true that if Bush vetoes it, it's vetoed, and they probably, given uh, the current makeup of the House and the Senate, they probably cannot override the veto. But they can pass a bill and make Bush veto it, make Bush veto support for uh, the ongoing uh, the ongoing operations in Iraq, and and uh, that, that's certainly one way to do it. Another way to do it, as you say, is simply to refuse to ma- make any budget allocation whatsoever. So my opinion, uh, watching what's going on here, is of course that the uh, that the Democrats actually are not really interested in ending the war, um, because uh, there's all this uh, all this talk that they keep saying, "Well, we don't have the votes to override a veto," as if that's the relevant point, and it doesn't seem to be the relevant point at all. There are plenty of maneuvers that uh, that they could use. Well, I'm not even talking about mm-hmm. parliamentary maneuvers. I'm just talking about mm-hmm. a straight vote no on any bill that doesn't have a withdrawal date in it. Yeah, and then just if you could it. let them put the bill forward, but as long as it doesn't get passed, they doesn't can do matter. whatever they want. Yeah, and have a debate and do whatever they like, but not but vote against it. But of course, there are parliamentary maneuvers that the Democrats could Moreover. easily use in, in, in many different things, in which they, they refuse do. to do. And then Tim Russert, you know, is on television asserting that Bush has the upper hand. Here you have the most unpopular president in recorded history uh, uh, pr- prosecuting a war that is a hugely unpopular, and with a Democrat-controlled Senate and Congress, and somehow Bush has the upper hand. And and somehow the the Democrats believe that Bush has the upper hand. This is uh, ludicrous, right? I, I mean, they're not that stupid. They these right. people are in office for a reason. They're quite shrewd politically. They're quite so shrewd operators. So my point is that they, that it seems very clear that they're they're actively colluding with the president to perpetuate the war. And the question is why? Now I know that you have a you have a particular theory about this, which I've heard going around. You might yeah, just to. just the idea that uh, the war is extremely unpopular, and if they can. Basically, keep the war going through '08. It will be a to the to the advantage of the Democrats and you know the presidential as well as all the other elections uh, to have that you know albatross of the Iraq War you know on the news every day with you know American soldiers being killed on a regular basis. Uh, of course, it's totally cynical and and you know uh, disturbing that the Democrats would do this, but I think a lot of them you know are capable of that. Uh, but there are there are a few Democrats who have been extremely uh, consistently con- opposed to the compl- war. Well, in in fact, also lately, uh, even lately, I mean, I'll even take mm-hmm. recent con- converts. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, I think, um, of course, you know, in the Senate we've had Russ Weingold against it all along, and Kucinich in the House, and all that. But and even um, our own local guy, um, um, what's his name, the guy from uh, Johnstown. Um, Come on, Bob. The uh, guy from, from Johnson. Uh, from Murphy, 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 right. Yeah. yeah. So the um Sorry, I'm reading ahead. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, That's, so so my point is, um there are a few people. There was a recent guy, there's a, there's a Texas guy I saw it on one of the a YouTube broadcasts somewhere, Crooks and Liars. I for, forgot where it was. He was really, really pounding the war. 
Texas representative saying we have to come get out of there. Uh, Republican, Democrat? It was a Democrat. Uh-huh. So there are a lot of people now. I think even Chris Dodd is talking like that. Oh, yeah, it? Dodd uh, openly, yes. Yeah, Dodd and, openly. Uh, and also Edwards. And yeah. um, We have a, uh, well, we can play it. It's a two-minute uh, commercial that Edwards uh Right. I wanted, to, I wanted to get to that. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, okay. uh, I think. But uh, I just wanted to, to mention that I, I myself have called my senators and congressmen to demand that they bring an immediate end to the war. And I think if enough people were to do that, that that would certainly have some effect on what's going on. I saw some report that Reid was getting bombarded after Bush's speech with uh, phone calls uh, demanding that he uh, that they put an end to the war. I mean, the way I did it is I didn't I, call Reid. I, I just called as, the local. I, I spoke as clearly as I could, you know, because... Because the point is, I say they want. I want the the troops to be pulled out of Iraq now. Is there anything that isn't clear about that sentiment? Is there anything <laughs> that you don't understand? Is there any nuance or opportunity for misunderstanding here? Because if there is, I'll clarify my position. You know, it, it it's un- unbelievable the way that they are really refusing to um, refusing to come uh, to to deal with this in, in in a really constructive way. Now, one of the arguments that is always coming up over and over again is, uh, well, and this is what Bush was relying on in his speech, uh, so with his return on success, is essentially now we're reduced to, well, you know, if we, if we, if we, uh, if we, uh, leave, then it'll be, uh, it'll be chaos. There'll be all sorts of bloodshed and God knows what will happen. And, and that is true. But the thing is, uh, the, uh, the, the, I think is almost certainly true. And we caused all that. That is absolutely true. But there, the, that, this is not the relevant question for two reasons. One is, um, is, there any, is there any conceivable path by which our remaining there with a, mili- with a military presence remaining there can solve what is, ha- you know, resolve the issue? The killings are going up. I mean, they, they have some phony numbers to claim the killings are going down because they don't count car bombings, for example. You remember we commented on that last spring. They decided to stop counting car bombings because if you counted car bombings and people were killed by that, then they would have no no way to control the numbers. That was their quote, uh, which is certainly true because people can, can, can plant car bombs at will. That's the entire point, uh, but never mind. Uh, so they try to cook cook the numbers, but the, the violence is, uh, has been going up and will continue to go up. And being there does not lead to any cessation of violence, in my opinion. I think there's no military solution to what we have there. Second of all, we're going to leave sometime, okay? Or at least that is a, a reasonable premise, is that we're going to leave sometime. Whenever we leave, it's going to be a disaster, okay? It's, it's going to be. I can foresee no, no situation by which it's other than that. Uh, we're going to, we're, and so we can, so leave now or leave later, which is going to make matters worse? Many analysts uh, I think, uh, who are, I think, better informed than I uh, claim and believe that the longer we stay there, the worse matters get. There just isn't going to be a military solution, either by staying there and trying to impose a solution or staying there long enough until a solution emerges is not going to happen. It requires diplomacy and government building and a, a long, terrible slog. I mean, this is the kind of thing where, for example, I could easily envision a role for the UN to take over, to have some kind of peacekeeping mission where it's clearly a neutral party, where it's uh, not the United States clearly trying to occupy Iraq and have a military presence in the Middle East, fulfilling the neocon dreams to control the political and uh, a situation and the petroleum resources in the Middle East by our military presence in Iraq. So if you, if, you, if you believe any of these premises, then the only thing you can conclude is we have no intention of, of getting out. 
because if we have no intention of getting out, then we never have to face the judgment day of what happens when we do get out. We just stay right. there in perpetuity. And indeed, I think we've said many times and left out. Right. Well, it's because they were building, they've been building these building immense this, bases that are permanent, enormous, poor permanent, concrete. We're not talking about flimsy tents. We're talking about a permanent air base, a gigantic permanent air base, and the world's largest embassy, which right. is nothing other than a reconstruction and of they Saddam's were building these while they kept saying, "Oh, you know." They kept they, they they refused to admit they wanted we were trying to, to, to wanting to stay there forever, it was obviously total garbage. So I want to mention if any of our listeners would like to uh, participate in the discussion, they're welcome to call left uh, call us on left out at four one two two six eight nine seven two eight. You can send electronic mail labob at leftout dot info, and you can also join the AOL chat room left out two words, uh, and uh, and you could uh, be in touch with us uh, that way as well during the program. So going back to the point, I mean, it seems it seems perfectly clear, as we have said many, many times uh, on Left Out, that the purpose here is a permanent occupation of Iraq. And after all, that is exactly what was said in the uh, infamous PNAC report authored by Bill Kristol and Donald Rumsfeld and all these other uh, characters, uh, uh, you know, many years prior to our invasion. And uh, indeed, it's playing out exactly as predicted. And and it's just that no one can uh, can quite you know admit that this is the plan. I mean, it is the plan. I noticed on uh, MSNBC um, uh, Olbermann's uh, commentary immediately after uh, Bush's pathetic speech last Thursday. Uh, he brought up the something that I also has been brought up and left out in a number of times over the years, if I may say so, which is uh, I have made the allegation in the past that the plan here from the beginning was always to impose a Warsaw Pact-like arrangement where we would have a puppet government uh, installed in Iraq. I think initially they thought they would just install Ahmad Chalabi. It was clear that that was the uh, initial plan, who would then invite us in to protect the poor Iraqis from their evil neighbors, uh, the Syrians and the Iranians and whoever else they could conjure up. Um, just as in the Warsaw Pact, the Soviet army was invited into Czechoslovakia and Romania and Hungary mm-hmm. and Poland in order to protect them from imminent invasion by the Austrians and the, uh, you know, the, uh, from, from, from Austria or from Greece or from uh, uh, any of the other evil Western European nations that were just uh, dying at any moment to uh, maraud over Poland and uh, take over. And and so we were we were seeing the exact uh, same scenario here. And indeed, Olbermann on Thursday night uh, described said, uh, "Well, are, are are we seeing here the emergence of a Baghdad Pact with mm-hmm. a clear reference to the Warsaw Pact?" And and right. indeed, uh, I would say that is precisely the point. Um, we are looking here, um, as many of our listeners I think will long have recognized, we are looking here at a permanent occupation plan in Iraq. The entire point was always, in my opinion, a permanent occupation of Iraq, and we are seeing it played out absolutely uh, on schedule as a permanent occupation of Iraq. There's no end in sight. And to my dismay, uh, the, uh, the Democrats are playing along. It's a, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's an amazing thing. Well, as you said earlier, going back to your earlier point, Danny, not every Democrat is playing along, but I'm speaking of the Democrats collectively in Congress because it certainly looks to me like they're going to kick the can down the road to March and thereby give Bush the gift of not having this failure wrapped around his neck before he leaves office and inheriting it for themselves, which is just ludicrous. Possibly, possibly, as you hypothesize, on the theory that the longer this drags out and the more painful it is, yeah. the worse it will be for the Republicans. That could 
be true on the margins, but we're talking about people's lives by the hundreds or thousands. And right. uh, the, if, if anyone has that kind of position, I would say that's uh, highly, uh, morally highly questionable. Now, amongst the people, there are many, uh, especially these days, <laughs> but uh, there have been a number of Democrats who were opposed to the war right from the beginning. Very few had the courage and the foresight to look at the obvious lies that were used to trump up the war. But now, you know, years go by and it becomes a disaster. Many of them are willing to uh, admit or change, recant. Now, one of the more, more I think, forthright uh, people who recanted and regret his vote in favor of the war was uh, John Edwards. And he, um, as we all know, he's running for president. We'll talk a little bit more about Edwards' uh, presidential campaign in a few moments. But the, uh, he, uh, uh, his, his campaign paid for a two-minute ad, which was broadcast on MSNBC on Thursday night, uh, about uh, half an hour after approximately the, uh, the Democrat response, or 20 minutes after the Democrat response, the official Democratic <laughs> response to Bush's speech, uh, which I would like to play for our listeners. It's a two-minute commercial we'll be running. Uh, let me pop that, pop that up now. It's really... I think very well worth listening to uh, Edwards' uh, comments. This week, as we will forever, we remember those lost on September 11th. And this week, Washington refocuses on Iraq. But the question of Iraq is separate from September 11th, as it always has been, whatever George Bush would have us believe. Likewise, supporting our troops and pursuing a failed war are not the same things, whatever George Bush would have us believe. All Americans honor the incredible sacrifice of our troops. They've done everything asked of them with courage and resolve. Now we should bring them home. They are policing a civil war, and the only way to end that civil war is for both sides, Sunni and Shia, to take responsibility to end it by agreeing to a political solution. And the only way to force them to take responsibility is to withdraw our troops, starting now. Unfortunately, the president is pressing on with the only strategy he's ever had, more time, more troops, and more war. In January, after years of evidence that military actions cannot force a political solution, the president announced a military surge to force a political solution. In May, he vetoed a plan to end the war, demanded more time to show the surge could work, and Congress gave it to him. Now, after General Petraeus reports the surge has produced no progress toward a political solution, what does the president want? More time for the surge to work when all of us know it won't. Our troops are stuck between a president without a plan to succeed and a Congress without the courage to bring them home. But Congress must answer to the American people. Tell Congress you know the truth. They have the power to end this war, and you expect them to use it. When the president asks for more money and more time, Congress needs to tell him he only gets one choice, a firm timeline for withdrawal. No timeline, no funding no excuses. It is time to end this war. I'm John Edwards, and I approve this message. Well, as you, <clears throat> as you heard, that was uh, John Edwards, who the former senator from North Carolina, who is running, running uh, for president on the Democratic ticket, uh, offering what I think is a very appropriate and forthright criticism of the uh, management of the war and uh, making a clear, uh, clear call for immediate end, end to the war. And I would uh, encourage uh, many of our, all of our listeners are left on left out to, uh, to, to pay attention to the Edwards campaign in general and in this issue in particular, 
because uh, my own view is unlike the leading, the so-called leading candidates, um, Edwards is really saying something. And if you listen to his commercials, and I'm going to play another of his commentaries uh, uh, in a minute that uh, that uh, in a few minutes that came up that I, that I would like our listeners to listen to as well. You'll notice that he's one of the few candidates who is actually. Uh, putting forward policies, putting forward concrete suggestions, and taking, showing real leadership. Uh, we've criticized uh, both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and left out before. Um, I've often described Barack Obama as much as I uh, am charmed by his uh, charisma as anyone else. I, you know, I find him uh, in some way uh, an immediately emotionally appealing character. I would like to see uh, him do well. But I cannot escape the observation that he never says anything and that he, he, his uh, candidacy consists of uh, being the blank slate onto which people uh, project yeah. their imagination of what he might be. And, uh, and I, I can't think that that is really, really a good, uh, good base, uh, foundation for a presidency. So uh, I suggest we take a, a brief break. Um, mm -hmm after which we'll continue talking about the whole nomination process and the media's coverage of it. Um, you can give us a call at 412-268-9728. Uh, we're back. You're listening to Left Out on WRCT 88.3 FM. Uh, as you know, Left Out is a reality-based independent media talking about the news and current events from a perspective often left out by, of the mainstream media. Um, Danny, we want to talk about the uh, campaign, right? Uh, so presidential campaign. <clears throat> we have a sort of discussion that to, to have here about regarding the issue of picking the nominee and, and the, the media's role in that process. And uh, well, what seems to be happening, certainly on the Democratic side, is there's a the well, we can see the process sort of in slow motion by which the, the nominee is picked. Uh, and I wanted to play a clip. Uh, from the Rachel Maddow radio show, it's about one or two minutes long, uh, where she analyzes a, a subtle way which the media has indicated uh, that they th that that Hillary is the front runner. And let's um, let's, let's I'll, I'll, we'll play that clip. I I must say I love Rachel Maddow. Yeah, let's hear the let's go ahead, Bob. Let you me, can play I'm, it. I'm queuing up the clip at the moment. Uh, she is on air. American. Most prominent message in this debate, for me at least, was the pecking order. Uh, George Stephanopoulos, who's the host of uh, This Week on ABC, former Clinton advisor, of course, he moderated along with David Yepsen from the Des Moines Register. And in a subtle way that nobody's really talking about today, they conducted the debate as if it is already settled that Hillary Clinton is going to be the nominee and that Barack Obama will be her running mate and that every other person on the dais is just jockeying for positions in their cabinet. That's what that's that's the subtle message about the way the questions are asked and to whom they are asked. For example, uh, David Yepsen asked Hillary to actually mediate a disagreement about Iraq um, between two experts, Richardson and Biden, as if they were already in her cabinet, as if they were her resident experts up on that stage to offer her advice and guidance, as opposed to people running against her who would be, you know, offering opposition and disagreement at this point. Senator Clinton. Help a Democrat out. You've got the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee saying one thing, and I've got a former UN ambassador saying something else. Who's right? So this puts Hillary in the position of being the decider, right? Which is very presidential. She, here she is having to split the difference between a former UN ambassador, Bill Richardson, and the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, Joe Biden. 
And implicit in that is how much Yepsen wants to tell us all, whether or not he's doing it consciously or not, that he's saying Joe Biden and Bill Richardson are cabinet material, Hillary Clinton is presidential material. That's what that means when you ask questions that way. Then George Stephanopoulos directly asked the candidates whether or not Barack Obama is experienced enough to be president. Is Barack Obama ready to be president, experienced enough to be president? This is the type of question that vice presidential candidates are often asked. John Edwards was asked it in 04 over and over again. He'd only been in the Senate a few years, just like Obama. And the question implies that he might one day have to become president, that he's an understudy and someday he might be called upon to be president. Not that he will be, not that he will have to be, he'd have to be elected president. Who will have to be elected? Hillary, of course. So the candidates are the candidates were all asked about Hillary's electability and her negative numbers. The Associated Press this week uh, wrote an article. They talked to 40 Democratic activists and officeholders across the country. It led to this series of headlines across the country. Democrats worry Clinton may weigh down lesser candidates. Democrats worry Clinton may hurt the rest of the ticket. Are they right to be worried? It's, a, it's subtle, right? But no other candidate's chances in a general election are even discussed in this debate. We're a year away from the Democratic Convention and already the coronation of Clinton has begun, right? And, you know, in terms of the way this debate has been received so far, I think the conventional wisdom on it is, is mixed a little bit. Um, I'm hearing, you're hearing quite frequently that Obama did well, and he did have a very good comeback to the experience question. Earlier on, we were talking about the issue of experience. Nobody had more experience than Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney and many of the people on this stage that authorized this war. That's very good. Because, of course, when people talk about Barack Obama and inexperience, Obama has tried to say, I am a Washington outsider. I represent change. I represent a new way of doing things. I haven't been completely, uh, I haven't, I, I'm not in the Washington groove. I haven't been there long enough. And then people say, you know, the, 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 the rejoinder to that is, well, George W. Bush wasn't very experienced either. And look what we ended up with with him. But, of course, um, Obama, for Obama to come back and recast that and say, well, Cheney and Rumsfeld were very experienced. It's very, it's very well done. It's very well done. I thought that was very good. That was the uh, very brilliant uh, Rachel Maddow from uh, Air America Radio commenting on the, analyzing the uh, way in which right. our, our electoral process is conducted. So, I mean, I noticed this first when I, <clears throat> in 2000, when Bush became the front runner, It was like Bush decided he's going to run for president. And um, I don't know, 1999 or something, and he was immediately taken very seriously. The moment I looked at this guy, I said, "Why is he president? Why is he presidential material? We've got this mediocre governor of Texas who's never done anything, who's got you know, a, 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 he's inarticulate. He's uh, not accomplished anything much. He's a weak. It just seemed like a weak in every way, every completely inappro- improper person to even think about being president." And yet he was just sort of glided into the whole thing. Uh, the media just, you know, lapped him up. When we had, of course, Gore was being, you know, chopped to pieces. But uh, just going back to the, the current campaign with, with Hillary being the front runner, um, we had that, that as, as Rachel points out, these subtle hints, which are very easy to pick up, you know. And then uh, it, there's a, a, as if on cue for, uh, for our program, uh, David Shribman of the uh, Post-Gazette wrote an editorial on Sunday. Every Sunday he writes an editorial called My Point. Uh, and this week's uh, edition was suddenly a frontrunner. It's about how Hillary uh, has become the frontrunner. And he talks about how this happened and why this happened and what's going on. He says, well, he says, 
It's not a mainstream media conspiracy either. It's just a discernible adjustment in the political climate. Well, I don't want to get into debating the, the word conspiracy here, but clearly the media is projecting this decision, as, they, as Rachel Maddow points out, and now David Friedman continues to do this in his editorial. So they're pointing out this decision that uh, Hillary's going to be the nominee. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, we're, I don't know, it's four months, six months away from the first primary. Uh, it's uh, incredible. So, uh, well, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a, we can look at each specific candidate and see how they're treating them. But what was interesting to note, what, one thing that's been pointed out many times is the difference between the way Republicans are typically treated and, and Democrats. Uh, and one of the, um, I've got a link to an article about how Dean was treated in uh, 2004 compared to, uh, you know, some of the other Republicans. But just uh, in, in this race, uh, it was an article in today, in Sunday's, again, Sunday's Post-Gazette about Thompson. The title of the article is Thompson Looks Right to GOP's Base Voters by Jeremy, uh, Jerome Sherman. Uh, in Sunday's Post Gazette, so he, he apparently is traveling with you know the campaign in Florida or something, and watched Thompson talking to people and talked to some of the people who met Thompson and so on. Well, the article is like you know sort of a I don't know superficial, totally superficial discussion of Thompson, how he looked and his mannerisms and stuff, and how he looks like he could be trusted. People said things like that, but he doesn't mention some really incredible things that have happened in the Thompson campaign, really, re- really, really revealing. If you want to know what this guy might be like as president, uh, just look at these incidents that have occurred. So um, one thing that happened was uh, somebody asked him about the Social Security issue, which was a big big issue for Bush and after the, the 04 election. Bush started pushing that. Um, well, he couldn't remember what... Uh, he couldn't remember what Bush's position on Social Security was. So here's this huge issue that, uh, you know, it's very important to the voters, it's very important to the candidates, and uh, here he is um, just uh, having no idea what's going on. I mean, he doesn't, I, you know, I don't, I don't get it. Or he's, well, I mean, he doesn't care. The other issue that was even stranger was the Terry Schiavo case because that was, you know, going on for like a, a six months. It was in the news constantly for six months, and he apparently had completely forgotten uh, what the issue there was as well. So um, either he's completely senile or he just has no interest in policy and politics. Um, it seems like kind of an important uh, thing for for voters to know about. Well, I think that I suspect the whole point about the Fred Thompson candidacy is exactly that he's a he's another you know a sort of a Reagan nitwit who uh, many people think uh, you know has a genial personality and it doesn't matter he doesn't know anything because after all he's a nice guy and wouldn't you like to have a beer with him and he's a hell hell of a nice guy isn't he uh, backslapper you know what he's a hell of a good right, guy. we got one of those already yeah we, yeah, should, I mean, we, should, go, we should go for him. It's uh, part of the uh, Republican Party uh, anti-intellectualism, um, that both in a, a large and a small sense I was thinking about in the way over, in the small sense of obviously being against intellectuals uh, per se, but in the larger sense of being against any kind of logic and reason and exploiting the ignorance of the 
populace to uh, to encourage this kind of uh, nonsense about you know Bush's gut and all that all that all that nonsensical rubbish. You know, we saw where Bush's gut instincts took us, or uh, where the voices he hears in his head took us by his own statement. Um, of course, I don't think they were really his gut instincts, but, but anyway, that, no, they were that, that was that actually. was just the, uh, uh, they the were, PR They were Cheney's gut instincts, and they were uh, dead wrong like the rest of the stuff Cheney ever did in his life. Uh, so they were, uh, another thing that we're, uh, we're, there's an interesting article we have linked on the Left Out uh, webpage from the Columbia Journalism Review, which is an analysis of how um, John Edwards is being uh, treated by the, uh, by, the, uh, by the press, by the American press, and it's called Dear John, parenthetically, Edwards. Um, and it, the subtitle is, This is kind of awkward, but um, it's over. Sorry. And the, uh, the gist of it is, um, and they have a, a mock missive here that says, Dear John, things might have lasted had you not been so calculating or attention-seeking or metrosexual or flip-flopping or opulent in your lifestyle or full of craven ambition or obsessively focused on your image or prone to biting the hand that feeds you or overshadowed by your wife or reminiscent of Howard Dean or white, male, liberal, clean-cut, and well-to-do. However pretty you may be and however much your smooth voice may drip with Southern charm, it's just not working out between us. Sorry. So this is the media missive to uh, to John Edwards with uh, all of those uh, words that I stressed uh, uh, with uh, put in scare quotes are links articles. to the various articles yeah. uh, that uh, point out this and so they point out like the way that the media apparently has really decided to you know get rid of Edwards and so they're they're going through and uh, bringing up all these uh, ridiculous uh, uh, these ridiculous things including various kinds of insinuations um, so for example they're always talking about his 28,000 square foot pleasure palace, that's a quote, or, you know, about his uh, expensive hair grooming. And, and then they contrast that with Mr. Edwards has presented himself in the democratic field as an advocate of working class Americans lamenting the nation's growing economic disparity. I mean, uh, as if the other uh, people who are running for president aren't wealthy people. I mean, it's completely, completely ludicrous. It's ludicrous. They can't help sticking in a, a knife. Yeah, so then they know. statement then, about him to throw in a little knife. Yeah, then they, they, then, they, then they know. Well, he doesn't accept money directly from federal lobbyists, so that's uh, this is true. But then, you know, they have to add, he is not above benefiting from the broader lobbying community. What in the hell does that mean? I mean that that, that uh, it, it's 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 ridiculous. Okay, the the you know so the guy doesn't take lobbyist money, but he he's nevertheless he's not above benefiting from the broader lobby. So this is a kind of statement that cannot be refuted or denied or yeah. you know it's an insinuation. Right, it's right. A, 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 you know, they they can't resist throwing that stuff. And in. they it's describe like, him as dragging his family through thousands of miles and stump speeches. I mean, like as if every presidential candidate doesn't travel around with his wife and. Uh, you know, uh, grandchildren or children or whatever. It's completely, you know, ordinary. And if he didn't do that, they would be portraying him as abandoning his poor, sick wife at home uh, instead of taking her with him. You know, either way, you know, you lose. So, in fact, Rush Limbaugh, of all people, uh, accuses... Uh, you know, of uh, uh, Edwards of trolling for sympathy votes on account of the unfortunate health, pro serious health problems that his wife uh, has uh, has run into, and so it's uh, it seems really clear that. Um 
that you know the press is trying to do the same sort of uh you know the same sort of nonsense on edwards as they uh, as they did on uh, for example uh, al gore or on howard uh, dean or on howard dean or on uh, john Kerry uh in the last uh, several elections they've really decided who we want but as i said before you know regarding this edwards, issue of hypocrisy because he's a rich guy wanting to help the poor go for it i mean it's it's fdr was probably the president Not the exactly. one president who was the most <clears throat> You know, a successful Tony. in creating in creating <laughs> yeah. uh, article. You know, hel- helping poor people, starting Social Security, all these programs. That, he, and he uh, was branded the a class trader. How dare he? And, and well, but he was also an incredibly rich guy. Yeah, he, but he that's was, what I so mean. He was a rich guy. He was a traitor actually, to his yeah. class. He wasn't supposed to be doing that. You know, he was vilified by other wealthy people. Yeah, uh, because he was a traitor to his own his yeah. own class, his own social. But it's as if J.P. Morgan were doing it. My God, and we yeah. all know that the J.P. Morgans of the world are supposed to uh, tread on little people. <laughs> I mean, that's the idea. Yeah. But the ball I'm saying is, it's the idea that there's something you know implausible or hypocrite. Well wrong or unbelievable about a guy, a rich guy who wants to help poor people is just refuted yeah, by so this example that's most prominent president we've you know, we've had. It's so. a quite quite uh, quite disgusting, isn't it? So I want to come back to an earlier point was, you know, they're vilifying Edwards, but you know, his uh, campaign is one which I find is one of real substance. He has a number of very clearly put uh, put forward uh, uh, suggestions and policies and ideas that are much more clear cut and definite and actually more uh, articulately uh, explained than any other. And I want to play uh, briefly uh, uh, his response to Hillary Clinton's uh, recent uh, health care proposal, and I will play that now. Why don't we have universal health care in America today? I've got a simple answer for that. We don't have universal health care in America today because of insurance companies, drug companies, and their lobbyists in Washington, D.C. That's why we don't have universal health care. In 1993, the Democrats controlled the Congress and the White House, and we actually had a president who had the courage to propose universal health care. But that plan was killed. It was killed and run out of town by an army of lobbyists who were working for insurance companies, drug companies, and HMOs. Since 1993, the number of people who who don't have health insurance in America has grown from just over 39 million to 47 million. And insurance premiums have nearly doubled. And the cost, and by the way, we didn't get universal health care, but we got NAFTA. We need universal health care. We didn't need NAFTA. But the cost of that failure 14 years ago is not just somebody's political fortune or their scars. It's the millions of Americans who've now gone almost 15 years without health care, and the millions more who are being crushed by the cost of health care. I'm glad that uh, the architect of the 1993 effort to pass universal health care is coming out with a proposal today. As I mentioned earlier, I came out with a proposal seven months ago. And if imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, well, I'm flattered. Uh, I, I I, I want to say, though, that unless... Unless Senator Clinton is willing to acknowledge the truth about our broken government and the cost of health care reform, I'm afraid this flattery is not going to get us anywhere. Actually bringing change starts with telling the truth. And the truth is that this system in Washington has been hijacked. 
It's been hijacked for the benefit of corporate profits and the wealthiest people in America. Many good people go to Washington and stay so long that they actually think that they can work within this system. And they can work within this system that destroyed health care reform to bring about health care reform. Here's what I believe. I don't believe you can sit down with lobbyists, take their money, and cut a deal. If you defend a system that defeated health care, I don't think you can be the president who brings health care. The only way to bring real health care reform is to end the Washington influence game and to end it once and for all. You also have to be honest about what health care costs. You know, I have a health care proposal. It's not free. I don't claim that it's free. And in fact, my plan costs 90 to $120 billion a year. But I have a way to pay for it, which is to get rid of George Bush's tax cuts for people who make over $200,000 a year. The lesson that Senator Clinton seems to have learned from her experience with health care is if you can't beat them, join them. I've learned a very different lesson from decades of fighting these powerful interests, which is you can never join them. You just have to beat them. And if you're going to, if you're going to negotiate universal health care with the same powerful interests that defeated and killed it before, your proposal isn't a plan. It's a starting point. I'd like to know what principled compromise looks like on universal health care. When you cut the deal on universal, who's going to be left out? And if you don't compromise on the universal part, does that mean you compromise on the health care part? Lower quality? Higher costs? I don't believe it. In the America I believe in, we don't compromise on principles. I will not compromise on universal health care, not on coverage, not on quality, not on cost. I'll fight for it with everything I've got. And I'll tell you something else I will do as president. On the first day that I am sworn in as president of the United States, I will submit legislation to the Congress that ends, stay with me on this, that ends health care coverage for the president all members of Congress and all political appointees in both branches of government on July 20th, 2009, unless they have passed universal health care for the United States of America. There is no excuse for the President and for the Cabinet and for members of Congress to have health care when America doesn't have health care. That was uh, John Edwards uh, talking about uh, his health care plan and analyzing the proposal from uh, Hillary Clinton this week. Um, I just put that forward as, a, as an example of what I think uh, of, of Edwards really coming out and being very clear about what he's doing and what he wants to do. Right. I, really liked, I really liked the way... He, characterize the system as fundamentally broken because the lobbyists and uh, for, for all these different uh, drug companies and health care companies are so powerful There's so much money make involved it, make it impossible to do anything with it, it you know with that that you know pollution in the whole system 
Uh, and uh, with that thought, I would like to, uh, we'll come to the conclusion of this edition of Left Out. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Tina Milo and now uh, Bijol, uh, DJ uh, 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 <laughs> Beige, I can't remember his uh, the DJ right Hank? name. Uh, DJ <laughs> Hank, excuse me, DJ Hank, okay. our former producer, is back temporarily this evening. And uh, thank you all for listening. We'll be back in two weeks' time. <laughs>